Good morning. It's good to be with everyone this morning. It's my privilege to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Did anyone wake up this morning and look at their calendar and realize what day it is? It's uh, 02, 02, 2020. <laughs> also Groundhog Day, Super Bowl Day, right? We, we, we put a lot on our calendars, don't we? we, we, we yeah. Did you know that in less than two weeks' time, it's Valentine's Day? So this is your warning to guys, no excuse, me included. And really the only reason I bring up that is because when we think of Valentine's Day, we think of love, and we're actually going to be talking about love today, right? So, uh, you know, talking about love, back in the 70s and 80s, before many of you were born, but uh, a lot of us were around then. There was a sitcom on TV, a popular sitcom called Taxi. Some of you will remember that. And in that show, Danny DeVito, you remember Danny DeVito? Short Danny DeVito, rough and rash, whatever. Danny DeVito stars as Louie. He's a taxi garage manager, owner, I'm not sure, whatever. He's the boss. And it stars, he stars as Louie, right? Louie, the manager. And he's, he's portrayed as brash and rude and crude. He doesn't care about anyone or anything. The only thing he cares about is his wallet, his dollar. And he, he, he just says absolutely anything that comes onto his mind. He doesn't care if he offends anyone. In fact, I think he enjoys offending someone, everyone, right? Well, there's also a guy called Latka, or Latka, Latka. He is a foreigner who is the mechanic in the taxi garage. And one of the things about Latka is because he's a foreigner, his lack of English fluency is often the brunt of mo- a lot of the humor, well, on one occasion, one, se- uh, one series or show, Latka comes into the shop and he's going around telling everybody, I in love, I in love. He goes to everyone he sees, I in love. And Danny DeVito throws open his door. He says, what are you talking about, you in love? In his usual brash way. And Latka says, I in love. I see this beautiful girl. She make my heart happy. She, she, she's beautiful. I want to take her home. And Danny DeVito says, that's not love. That's lust. Ah, oh, thank you for correcting me. And then he goes to everybody and says, I in lust, I in lust. I in. And the only reason that that is somewhat humorous is because Danny DeVito actually hits the nail on the head. You see, unfortunately, the world has a totally messed up view of what love really is. So today, we're going to try and set some of that straight. So if you haven't already done so, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, and you can find that on page 804 in the Auditorium Bibles. Now, as we talk about love, I know what some of you are thinking. We've already had the sermon on love one another a couple weeks ago. Are we really going to talk about this again well, let me ask you this. How do you know if somebody's really, really passionate about something? Yeah, they never stop talking about it, right? Well, obviously, John thought this was important enough to bring up. He, he writes a whole section on it in, in, in 1 John chapter 3. And here in the second half of John chapter 4, he brings it up again. And actually, God inspired him to, to, to write it. So if God thinks it's important enough to bring it up again, and John thinks it's important enough to write it down, obviously it's important enough for us to keep going over till maybe we finally get it, right? 
So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage today. First uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So it's a long passage this morning. So bear with me. Try and follow along. And we'll, let's see what we can dig out of this that God would speak to our hearts in this morning. Starting in verse 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love God or know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know And to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And this is the word of the Lord. So what I really want to focus on this morning are just three things. It all has to do with love. The first thing is God's nature. Then our nature, apart from Christ. What are we normally like apart from Christ? And the third thing is our nature with Christ. So let's talk about God's nature first. When we describe someone... We very often describe their nature rather than their appearance. You know what I'm talking about here? For example, we might say Mary is super smart, or Tom is really mean, or we might say your grandmother is super sweet. Or maybe Sally is a huge gossip. Whatever the case may be, what you're doing is describing their nature, something that identifies them as them apart from their appearance. So twice in this section, in verse 8 and 16, God is described as love. It literally says God is love. Why? Because love is in God's nature. Now, I know there are plenty of other things that could also describe his nature. For instance, we could say God is righteous, God is holy, and God is just. And all these things are also true of God. But in this section of Scripture, the Apostle John chooses to focus in on the love portion of God's nature. 
you know, we learn a lot about a person's nature by the way they act, right? Just, just observe them and you can tell what their nature is, right? For instance, we could say Bobby's nature as a schoolyard bully is manifested. Now, I want you to get that word manifested because we're going to be using it here over and over here. God's, or Bobby's nature as a schoolyard bully is manifested by the way that he likes to knock the other children down, right? So you get what I'm saying here? Verse 9 says that God's love was manifested or made known. So what I want to do here is look at three ways that God's love is manifested or in plain English, made known to us. So God's love was manifested by, here's the first one, by God sending his only son. Let's read verse 9 again. In this is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Let me ask you this. Did God need to send his only son, Jesus, into the world? I mean, was he lacking in some way? Was Jesus lacking in some way? Did Jesus come to earth because he needed us? No, Jesus didn't come to the earth to benefit himself. In fact, he came at great cost to himself. Even his very life, rather he came to benefit us. Here it says in verse 9, so that we might live through him. He didn't come to benefit himself. He came to benefit us. Some of you know how much Pastor Chris dislikes, we might even use the word hates cats. And, and he has a good reason to because he's allergic to them. Or so he says. So picture this. You're down walking by the river, and, and all of a sudden, you, you're, it's cold, there's chunks of ice floating by, and all of a sudden, you see Pastor Chris, and he's looking in the river, and he sees a drowning cat out there. It's scrawny, and it's trying to climb up on a piece of ice, but there's no hope for it. And all of a sudden, Pastor Cripps rips off his shirt and dives in to save the drowning cat. Can you imagine that? Uh, actually, I can't, but uh, he probably wouldn't. But if he did, I can guarantee you That wasn't for his benefit, but only for the benefit of the cat, right? And that, my friends, is what God did for us. He jumped in, not because he needed to, but because of our desperate need for him. To be saved from drowning in our sins and the consequences that that brings. Everlasting punishment. You see, God demonstrates his love by sending his only son because of our need for him. And the second way that God manifests his love was by initiating the relationship. God initiates the love relationship. What makes us love someone? What makes us love something Wouldn't you say it's usually because of the way that person or that thing makes me feel? For instance, we could say, well, 
I, I, I love that person because they are nice to me, or I love them because they, the way they make me feel. I love that person because they're beautiful and they make my heart go pitter-patter or whatever the case might be. We might say, I love walking on the beach because I love the feel of the warm sun on my shoulder and the sand between my toes. Or I love to go fishing because of the adrenaline rush I get when I snag that big one, right? Whatever the case may be, what is it really? It's really about us, isn't it? It's about what we get out of it. But get what, get what it says in verse 10. In this is love. This is the real kind of love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Did you get that? God didn't love us because we were so nice, because we gave him the warm fuzzies, or because we gave him so much attention. No, We were the miserable, scrawny, drowning, allergy-producing, scrabbing, drowning cat that had nothing to offer God. But guess what? He loved us anyway, in spite of ourselves. Have you ever watched those uh, animal rescue videos how the rescuers are in peril of their lives because the animal does not understand that you're actually trying to help them, right? You've seen them, right? The cougar caught in the trap will just as soon bite your head off even though you just feel sorry for him and want to help him out, right? In the same way, Jesus put his own life on the line to set us free from the trap that we are in, the trap that will eventually result in our eternal death and damnation, a trap in which Satan tries to keep us in bondage. And the more we struggle, the more we strain, the more we fight on our own to try and get out, the more that noose tightens around us and the more entangled we get. And we shake our fist at God and we curse and we snarl just like that animal caught in the trap. Rather than asking for help, we just fight against it. And what does God do? God demonstrates His love, by initiating the relationship and loving us, the unlovable, in spite of our miserable condition and our miserable selves. And the third way that God's love is manifested to us is through his atoning sacrifice. God sacrificing his only son. The thought of this alone should stop us dead in our tracks. Let's read verse 10 one more time. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and get this, and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We talked at length about propitiation in chapter 2, about what propitiation is and what it means for us. But here in chapter 4, John brings it up again as a demonstration of God's love. So let's recap. What is propitiation? Propitiation is an action meant to appease someone's wrath. And if you were here uh, when we were in chapter 2, you'll remember we used the illustration that uh, if, if my wife would leave town for a few days, she wants to come home to a clean house, but I have it absolutely trashed, right? She's angry, and rightfully so. 
So I go out and buy her flowers and chocolates in an attempt to give her these gifts in order to appease her wrath. But in a much greater way. That gift is the, the propitiation, but in a much, much, much greater way, we deserve the wrath of God because of our sins. You see, while we have seen that God his nature is love. Love is in his nature. We also know that justice is part of his nature. And justice demands that evil should be punished. There's no justice if there is no payment for the crime. Think of it like this. You're caught in the trap. It is your own sins that are the jaws of the trap that keep you there, keep you ensnared and hold you there. And God in his love comes along and says, I, want, I love you and I want to help you out. I'm just there for you. Let me help you out. I don't want you to see you suffer and die and bear the consequences of your sins for all eternity. But guess who's sitting on the sidelines? It's Satan. And he says, hold on, hold on a second here. These are my traps. These are my snares. I set them. They sinned. They jumped into them. They fell in. And now they are mine. They belong to me. Their very life, their blood, their eternity belongs to me. And God says, true. The wages of sin is death. That is truly the wrath that this person caught in the trap deserves. But guess what? I will pay the price for their freedom. The, the life of my son for the life of this person in the trap. His blood for theirs. The blood of my son for their blood. The psalmist says it like this. He, meaning God, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. God's desire is to rescue us out of that trap of which Satan has us in. And this, my friends, is propitiation. God's gift to us in that Jesus would suffer and die in our place. Jesus in our place. Jesus experiencing the wrath of God that we deserve. John Stott puts it like this. Propitiation is the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. And that gift is Jesus Christ. God shows his love to us by offering us a way out, by offering us the gift of salvation through the sacrificial death of his only son, Jesus. It is Jesus' very blood that is the price of atonement, the only acceptable payment that can free us from our sins and the jaws of death that have us ensnared. In his love, Jesus says, just accept the gift and let me free you from the clutches of the evil one. And oh, how many fight to stay in the trap as he longs to help us out. Perhaps there are some here even today who are caught in the trap and you know there's a battle going on right here, right now, today for your soul. Won't you let today be the day when, when you fully realize that Jesus paid the price to get you out and stop fighting him and give over to him. Say, Jesus, I'm drowning in this trap. I'm caught. 
I've been trying and struggling and I just can't get out. Rather than doing it on my own, I give it over to you. Jesus, I trust that you paid the penalty for my sin with your very blood. I accept that. I don't want to do this on my own anymore. I trust you and I want to follow you. Today, I place my life in your hands. Today, I want to be that man or woman, boy or girl, who decides to follow you. I give my life over to you. Today can be the day when you do this. Consider the words of the hymn. We actually sang it just before the sermon. Behold the man upon the cross. That's Jesus. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. You know, we tend to be very critical. It's easy for us to, to be angry at the people who nailed Jesus to the cross, who, who mocked him, that, that, until we realize that that was really us. It was our sins that held him there, nailed to the cross, until he had paid the price. And even as this was going on, Luke tells us that even as the people mocked him and crucified him, what did Jesus do? He cried out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. A demonstration of immense love. God demonstrates his love by sacrificing his only son. What immense love. So if God's nature is love, and this is how he manifests it to us, what is our nature apart from God? Without God, without Christ, what's our normal nature? Which is actually point number two, our nature without Christ. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this one, only to say that it's not pretty. We like to fool ourselves into thinking that we're pretty good people. But even in that, to be completely honest, we're flat-out liars. Let me read to you from Romans chapter uh, 3, which describes every single one of us here this morning. In fact, every single person on the earth, it says, none is righteous. Do you get the word? None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. I think we still got some more here, do we? Their throat is an open grave. This continues to to describe us. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a second. That's not me. I'm not, I'm not swift to cause shed blood or some of these things that that's talking about. Oh, hold on. The Bible says if you hate somebody, if you... If you hate somebody in your heart, you have committed murder. If you look at somebody with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. This does describe, we are by nature evil people. There are none of us good. 
And my friends, if God is love, then this is the opposite to love. Even what we call love is sometimes confused with lust and selfish desires. The love that we have is all about us, what I can get, what makes me feel good, what brings me pleasure. And you know what? Oftentimes, that's always at the, not always, but a lot of times, that's at the expense of other people. So is this the end of the story? Is there any hope at all? Yes, because with Christ, our nature is changed, which brings us to point number three. We can take on God's nature which is actually the title of our sermon today, Taking on God's Nature. And number three, our nature with Christ. John uses the word abide or abides six times in verses 12 through 16. He talks about God abiding in us and us abiding in God. So what exactly is he talking about here? Well, to get this picture a little clearer, it might be good to visit the word picture that Jesus paints in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, where he talks about uh, himself being the vine and us being the branches, and the branches abiding in the vine or, or, or connected to the vine, getting their nutrition from the vine. And when I think of this, it reminds me of my dad. My dad grew up in the, the Great Depression, and the, re, the way they survived during that rough time was they grew and sold apples which actually gave him a great love for trees. And to his dying day, one of my uh, dad's favorite hobbies was grafting trees. And in the spring of the year, when the sap started to grow and the buds were starting to just show, he would go to one of his friends or neighbors or someone he knew and he would ask them, he says, I know you've got a really, really great apple tree or pear tree or whatever the case may be. And he'd say, do you mind if I take a twig off that? They said, no, help yourself. So he would take a sharp pocket knife and slice off a little twig, just a small little twig. He would wrap it in some wet towels to keep it moist, and he would bring it to his house. And there he would, he would on his own tree, he would slice the bark, and he would peel it back really gently, and he would put that twig, put it in to that place. And then he would bind it up tightly with tape. And then the waiting game came, a, a couple of weeks would come, and he would always be going out and checking to see if there was any signs of life. And sometimes there wasn't any, and it would shrivel up, and he would take it out, and he would throw it in the fire. But other times, you could see that that bud was starting to grow. And, and, and before long, you would see that it was starting to grow some leaves. Why? Because that root, that that that. That, that branch, that twig, was abiding in the main trunk. And as the, as, as the sap started to flow and the xylem and the phloem, and it's taking all the nutrients from the ground and putting it through the main trunk and into that little twig. And pretty soon that twig starts to get everything it, it, it needs from the main trunk. And it grows into a branch. And soon that branch produces twigs of its own. And before you know it, there's blossoms and apples and fruit. And before you know it, it's bearing much fruit. It wasn't uncommon for my dad to have an apple tree with several different varieties in the one tree. On this branch, there might be Golden Delicious. On this, there might be Gala. On this, another one, there might be Granny Smith. You see, those branches were able to produce great crops of fruit because they were grafted into the main tree. Without getting their source of nutrition from the main trunk, they would have shriveled up and become absolutely useless. 
you see those branches were abiding in the source that gave them life. And Jesus says that unless we as the branches abide in him or stay connected to him, the vine, we will be useless and wither up only to be cut off and thrown into the fire. On the other hand, whoever, if we abide in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit. And let me ask you this. What will that fruit look like? The only way, reason we can bear that fruit is because the nature of God starts to flow through it, just as the sap starts to flow through that branch. God's nature starts to flow through us, and we bear his kind of fruit. We show love, his kind of love, and not that twisted kind of selfish love that comes from our own nature, but rather the kind of love that only comes from abiding in Jesus. In his book, Unpacking Forgiveness, Chris Braun tells of a story of a 10-year-old boy by the name of Chris Carrier, who was kidnapped five days before Christmas. His attacker drove to a remote place where he proceeded to pin Chris to the floor of his motor home, where he stabbed him repeatedly with an ice pick and then burned him with cigarettes. And the 10-year-old tried to hold him off but was no match for the strength of a grown man. Young Chris, even going through this, remembered that he had grown up in a Christian home, gone to church. His parents had read the Bible to him, told him about the love of Jesus. And and even as this attack is going on, Chris cries out, Father, forgive him, because he doesn't know what he is doing. Sound familiar? The man then got behind the wheel of the motorhome and drove Chris to a remote place in the Florida Everglades where he got a gun and shot Chris in the head and left him there to die under some bushes. Chris lay unconscious for six days. The day after Christmas, he regained consciousness and was fortunate enough to be found by a passing hunter. The bullet had passed through Chris's head, behind his eyes, and exited his right temple Miraculously, he suffered no brain injury, but he did lose sight in his left eye. The trauma of this event left Chris spending many nights sleeping at the foot of his parents' bed, unable to even bear the thinking of being left alone in his own room. Years passed, 20 years passed, and one day Chris got a phone call from the police officer who had worked the case. And he told Chris that there was a man by the name of David McAllister who was, didn't have much longer to live. He was actually in a nursing home and he had confessed to Chris's abduction and attempted murder. And he asked Chris, would you like to meet this man? What do you think Chris would say? Chris said, yes, I would. And he went to meet David McAllister. And David McAllister at this time was an old man and he was racked with, with, with uh, just the feeling of guilt from what he had done. And Chris Carrier talked to him and explained to him that forgiveness was possible because of the love of Jesus Christ and what he had done because he paid the penalty for all our sins, no matter how bad they are, on the cross. Chris Carrier continued to meet with him repeatedly, even going as far as bringing his daughter with him to meet with him. 
And eventually, David McAllister says, okay, I want out of this trap. It's holding me here. I want Jesus. And he trusted in Jesus Christ. It was Chris Carrier who was there with David McAllister in his final days. And in his final days, the two men were great friends, best friends. And we sit here and we think, how is that even possible? How is that possible that you could love a man who, who, who tortured you and tried to kill you? And the only reason it's possible is because Chris Carrier had the love of God, and he had the love of God because he had the nature of God, and he had the nature of God because he trusted God, and because he trusted God, God abided in him and he in him, enabling him to love like God. And here's where the assurance comes in. The question many of us ask is this, how can I know for sure that I am a Christian? that I belong to Christ, and that I will experience eternal life. That I abide in Christ and he in me. And this is really what the application here is today. John tells us here that there are three ways that we can know for sure that we are true followers of Jesus Christ. And the first one is we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 13, by this we know. By this we think, by this we hope. No, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses, get this, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So what does it mean to confess that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking this for us this morning as this was the main thrust of last week's sermon. If you didn't get that, if you weren't here or need more clarification on that, I encourage you to go to our website, harmonybiblechurch.org, and and listen to that or watch that sermon. Suffice it to say that we will only abide in God and he in us if we confess that Jesus Christ, as God's son, is indeed God himself come in the flesh and that our hope, our only hope, is built upon the fact that his sacrifice, his death on the cross, was sufficient to pay for the penalty of my sin. Whoever confesses this, verse 15. And by this we know, verse 13. The second way that we can be assured and know that we are true followers of Jesus Christ is that we will love one another. Verse 16. So we have come to know, there it is again, to think, to hope, no, to know. By this, so we have come to know and to believe that love Uh, the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. As God is love in this world, so are we. There is no fear in love, but perfectly fear casts out, perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What John is really saying here is what we already talked about. 
If you have experienced the love of God through his demonstration of that love on the cross, if that has become real to you, then you will abide in him and you will have the ability to love others with a Christ-like love. When we experience that love, it gives us the ability to show that to others. And if you have this Christ-like love, then it is a sign that you abide in Christ and he in you. That his very nature is evident in you. And finally, if you have this Christ-like love within you, verse 17 tells us that we can have confidence on the day of judgment, that we need not fear punishment because the evidence of God's love in us is the assurance that we truly do belong to him. Amen? Amen? Let me ask you this. Do you love your fellows and brothers brothers and sisters? Or more simply stated, do you love other Christians? John is very clear in verse 19 when he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. This is a heart check thing here, right? What John is saying here is that if you can't bring yourself to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, then it's a good indication that God does not abide in you and you in him. Because if he did, if God did abide in you, his nature, the nature of his love would flow through you. If you were here in Burlington during the second service last week, you would have witnessed the tremendous opportunity, the privilege I had of baptizing my friend Zach. And I asked him if I could share a little bit about his story again. He says, absolutely. See, I first started getting to know Zach two years ago. And I started to learn many things from his checkered and troubled past. How many of the things from his youth, from his trouble with the law, from his entanglement with things of the world had left, led path, uh, Zach down a path that wasn't good. It shaped the person he had become, angry, prejudiced, untruthful. He told me that he would come to church occasionally just to keep his wife happy. But even when he did, when he walked through the doors and he looked at everyone, he really disliked everyone he saw. Especially me. Especially at the beginning. We came, we, we, we got to get to get along better as time went by. Why? Because God did not abide in Zach. He didn't have the love within him to show that. But two days after Christmas, this year, Zach finally called out to Jesus for salvation and threw himself at the mercy of God. And guess what? That made all the difference. Zach says, I'm tired of this. I can't do this on my own. And he called out for, to Jesus. And the scales of prejudice fell from his eyes. He called up the person to whom he had been untruthful and confessed that to them. And now he walked through the door of the church with a new attitude, one of love for everyone he sees, one of gratitude. Why the change? Because when we understand the love of Jesus, his love for us, when we fully grasp the enormity of his sacrifice for us in our place, 
When we finally give up our selfishness and our self-control and let Jesus take control, the Holy Spirit takes over and the nature of God starts to manifest itself through us, namely by the way we show our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when this happens, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are a new creation in Christ Jesus. He says, the old things are passed away and the new has come. And Zach is a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. Praise God. You know what? If we're truly saved, if we truly belong to Jesus, we will love one another. Will we, will we be perfect in this? No. The simple truth is that none of us will be perfect until this side of heaven. But, but John says we will be perfected. In other words, we will continue to be perfected in this. And that love should grow within us. It should be enough. There should be enough evidence there that, 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 that we do love one another. If you're totally going around all the time and you're always angry at other Christians, it's like, you better check your heart. Let me ask you this. Is it enough to just love our brothers and sisters in Christ? In other words, can I say, okay, I love all my fellow Christians, but I hate non-believers. I hate people who are not Christian. How are we told to love? How are we supposed to told to forgive as God forgave us, as God loves us? That's what we're supposed to do, right? And, and when did he love us? When we were good? No, while we were still sinners. That's when God loved us. John 3.16 3, says that God so loved the world. What he's talking about is here the people of the world. He loved us. When did he love us? <laughs> yeah, when we were lost in our miserable selves, our miserable sin. That's when he loved us. And that's why he sent his only begotten son. Verse 17, why so that the world through him might be saved. An indication that you are truly a son or a daughter of God is that you will not only love your brothers and sisters in Christ, but you will have a compassionate love for those who are perishing because they do not know, they have not experienced the love that God offers through the death of his son. Like Chris Carrier, he had a love and a compassion for David McAllister. Why? Because he loved the people who are lost, he knew they didn't experience God's love. Why do we send people around the world to share the gospel with people who have never heard it? Why do some people go? Why do we give financially to make that possible? Why do, why do we stock the shelves of our food pantry the first Sunday of every month? Why do we give to the benevolence ministry to help people in dire straits? Why do we make meals for Celebrate Recovery or the youth group on Saturday on Sunday nights? We do it because of our love for the hurting, the lost, and those in need of a Savior. We do it because we have experienced the love of God. And in turn, Jesus has given us a heart of love and compassion for others, no matter who they may be. The third and final way that we can be assured and know that we are true followers of Jesus Christ is that we will obey. John finishes up this section in verse 21 and it says, and this commandment we have from him. Who's him? It's Jesus Christ. This commandment we have from Jesus Christ is that whoever loves God must also love his brother. My dear friends, this is not an option. 
This is not a suggestion. No, it says this is a command. And if we are true followers of Jesus Christ, then we will obey our commanding officer. And who is that? That's Jesus Christ himself. We will love one another. And how is this possible? I will admit it. There's many people that are pretty unlovable that, that they just get under our skin. But it's possible to love them in spite of that. Why? It's only possible when we fully understand the love that God has for us and how he demonstrates it for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let's pray.